This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The legislature, in the final days of session, approved $8 million for a National Cybersecurity Intelligence Center in Colorado Springs. This is a priority Governor John Hickenlooper laid out in his State of the State speech earlier this year. This center can be the country's foremost authority on cybersecurity research and development, on training, and on education. It will provide real-time response capability for business to detect, prevent, remediate, and recover from threats and hacks. Let's hear now from Scott Nelson. He runs a cybersecurity firm called SecureSet. He's also part of the Western Cyber Exchange. That's a group of states that share information about cyber threats. The exchange was involved in the planning for this new center. Nelson spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. Welcome, Scott. Thank you very much. So if there's a fire, I'd call the fire department. If there's a cyber attack, would I call the center? Well, I think that's the sort of the rub. So if if you're if I put my military hat on, and if you were in the government, and you were in the military, I was in the military. I still am. Yep. Uh, a colonel in the Army Reserve. But uh, I, I think the, for the government, it's very clear on how we respond to these type of incidents because we have the authorities within the government. The problem is it's really mushy between public and private and how we respond. And so in today's environment is how do you become proactive? So instead of having the fire department respond, is how do you actually build a house that's uh, protected and secure from cyber attacks. And that's a harder thing to do than say, but how do we enable that through these public-private initiatives like what Governor Higginlooper has talked about with the uh, the uh, National uh, Cyber Threat Center? Uh, so some of this is still being worked out. One of the key focuses of the center would be to train people to work in the field of cybersecurity. What are the job opportunities like? Well, I'll tell you, this is an, an impressive industry right now. Uh, we're in negative employment. So right now, uh, I've heard statistics saying about 1.1 million vacancies in cybersecurity globally. Mm-hmm. Inside the United States, it's about 500,000. Inside the federal government, a, a couple reports say 60,000 vacancies. So if you have any skills in, in computer science and want to get after uh, getting into security, it's a great opportunity. Starting salaries in these places, a lot of these uh, jobs are starting between sixty dollars and $80,000 a year here in Denver. And uh, for companies, governments, and nonprofits, how common are cyber attacks? They're very common. So so there's a, a number of uh, uh, experts out there have stated if you haven't been attacked yet, you just don't know about it. Um, and I think I've seen statistics that said about 95% of companies out there have even been probed or attacked in the past six months. Uh, and you see these major incidents have happened, the Sony attack, Anthem, and uh, Target is an example. And, and those continue to go on. You've tracked cybersecurity for 18 years. What are the latest threats cyber experts are facing right now? Yeah, I think the, the biggest one is sort of this sophistication of the, of the networks of cyber attackers. So uh, as an example, uh, the two high-end level ones are the active persistent threat, which is nation-state-sponsored. Uh, think of Russia, Iran, uh, mm-hmm. China. And then the, the, the merging of criminal networks with those nation-states. Uh, Russia does this very effectively with the mafia and the use of the mafia to get that sort of that fog of attribution when it comes to a cyber attack. And and, um, we've listed several companies that have been hit by attacks. Give me a sense of what some of the consequences can be. How much can these attacks really damage an organization, a company long term? Well, so so 
there was a recent report came out, came out of IBM uh, that said an average attack, a major average attack, costs about $3.5 million per company. So if you think about a midsize or a small company, that puts you out of business. Uh, the, the other important thing about this is the dynamics of how the cyber threats have changed. So in the past, like in the 90s and the early 2000s, when a bank got hit and, and money was stolen because of an intrusion, uh, the bank just used, used that as a loss. Well, in today's environment, now we're losing reputations. So things like Target or Home Depot attacks where they're targeting your databases and you're stealing your customers' information, those customers walk away from you. So you're starting to lose your reputation and your actual business if you don't think about this. How vulnerable is the state government specifically to an attack? Well, I think the state government's vulnerable because it it holds a lot of citizens' really important records. So everything from health records to tax records, all those are vulnerable today. Uh, uh, hackers and cyber criminals are really after those records. And you can see how the criminal organizations really expanded that. Uh, I think the state itself is struggling, uh, and this is not just the state of Colorado, but across the nation, because we don't have a lot of dollars now to spend on really securing these networks. And these people and these systems cost a lot of money. And then you add the complexity of systems that are all networked with a bunch of different domains across uh, different networks and having a, sm a small workforce to manage that. And then you add all the public and private linkages between the government and the, and the private sector. Then you add the complexity of a human inserted into the center of that where humans make lots of mistakes and networks don't sometimes. So it's, there's a dynamic here across the nation that we are very, very vulnerable because we're so reliant on cyber. So how would the new center help governments like Colorado respond to the threat? Well, I think there's there's a whole bunch of ways, and I'll give you the top three. Uh, the first one is how do you become proactive? So the idea of this center is really how to understand threats, share information, and actually respond if a threat is going down. Uh, so if, an, if a company, for example, is under attack and then alerts the center, the center then can send out a, a flash message to all the other companies to say, hey, block this IP address or whatever else, we're seeing this malware, et cetera, and look for these indicators. Um, the other second part of that is training. So how do we educate and exercise a response to an incident? Uh, it could be, I guess, the power grid or electric grid or some other uh, important sector in the state. And then the final one is, you know, how do we get the communities really to understand? So how do we spread the word about cybersecurity from a, from a citizen's perspective and help them understand how to respond to these type of events? Now, private companies would be part of this security center sharing information. But why would an insurance company, for example, um, want to get help from this center instead of just hiring a private company? Well, I think I think it comes down to a couple of things. One is is what's the role of government, uh, and I think this center is really a, a good indication of the opportunity for public private uh, partnership across across the stream, and it and it can't be just one company that's doing all the consulting to help in in uh, developing messages or strategies towards threats. The second aspect is cost. So um, if, if we're talking about a, a wealthy company, uh, you know, a large insurance company, they would hire a private consulting firm. But if we're talking smaller organizations or even mom and pop insurance companies, they don't have the, the dollars to afford that. And so this is where that center would fill in that gap. Scott, thanks so much for joining me today. Great. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Scott Nelson is a cybersecurity expert. He spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. The Cybersecurity Center is scheduled to open in Colorado Springs later this year, according to the Colorado Springs Gazette. And we'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The state has just honored a man who cultivates young leaders and promotes Latino cultural awareness. 
that man is Francisco Navarez Burgueño, and his teaching tool is dance, specifically the folk dance he grew up with in his native Mexico. Navarez Burgueño, who lives in Carbondale, is one of three Coloradans to receive the governor's Creative Leadership Award this year. He directs the Folklorico program at Aspen Santa Fe Ballet. And uh, welcome to the program. Hi, how you doing? I'm good. It's nice to Thank talk you. to you. I understand most people refer to you as Paco. And so, Paco, um, tell me how dance is a, a vehicle for shaping future leaders. Well, uh, this kind of dance, especially the folkloric dance, helps these kids uh, to grow up with, uh, without uh, barriers. Uh, they grow up with a high self-esteem. You know, like they can be in the stage, they can perform in front of hundreds, thousand people, and they can be talking and dancing and know their bodies, know what they can do with their bodies, movements and all of that. Then that's a big part of their lives, the, the dance. And you and help them to, to grow up like that. Yeah, you say that this is about transcending barriers. What what are the barriers that you, you think these young people in particular are overcoming? Well, uh, most of my students, I want to say uh, 70% of my students, they're Latinos. And, and to be Latino here at this time of where we live in is, is hard for them to identify as an Americans because they American citizens now who born in this country from Latino parents who immigrate and now they are breaking those barriers to become proud Latinos of be dancing what their parents are their ancestors used to do in Mexico. And now with this program here in the Roaring for Valley, they have the opportunity to do what they grandpas, grandmas, mom, dad, uncles used to do in Mexico or in another parts of the world like Central America, South America. Yep, that's that's what they're breaking. And this also means that about 30% of your students are not Latino or Latina. And, uh, and who are they and what draws them to this? Well, maybe because we live in this rich valley where everybody shares with everybody. And all these 30%, 40% of my students uh, who are no Latinos, they just want to learn and they want to uh, enjoy our culture, our Latino culture, and learn our traditions, jump, uh, stamping, put those beautiful costumes on them and, and be part of the program, be part of, of, of these recitals and the stage, lighting, and and break those barriers uh, side by side with the Latino community. Folklorico blends traditional Mexican folk dances with some ballet, um, you know, pointed toes or highly choreographed movements. Um, will you just describe for us what this dance looks like? Well, this uh, our dances, our folklorico dances, it looks like very festive, very uh, colorful, and enjoyable for every single age, from kindergarten all the way to uh, high schoolers, even uh, uh, college, even adults. 
they these dancers are very very happy you know like everybody enjoy it when they are doing it when they are performing it can you think of a young person who has gone through this program uh, and and once again your work has just been honored by the governor can you think of a young person who has been transformed by this experience wow we just one <laughs> out of a hundred and out of hundred and ninety I have right now, or a thousand I've been having during these fourteen years, used to think about one. Oh, I have a lot of names in my mind right now, but really, this this uh, kind of dance has been transforming lives for these kids. Um, some of my former students, they parents right now, and. They put the kids in my program. I have the privilege to teach the kids of my kids. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And that this 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 program has been changing their lives. That's what I've been hearing. That's why they express to me. Uh, they pursue this folkloricical career. They look into an universities. We help them to get into colleges if they stay with us all the way to the high school years. And they've been doing it. They're returning to the valley. They're returning here. And and they use embrace the new generations who are doing it and support them. Then, yes, has been changing the lives of a lot of kids, a lot of uh, young adults. You took over the program in 2002 when there were about 25 students. Now you have nearly 200 students in Colorado as well as the satellite school in Santa Fe, New Mexico. It's connected to the the ballet there. Um, I want to talk more about your own background because you took a kind of untraditional, non-traditional path to dance um, you actually you pictured yourself for many years as a scientist. Let, let's pick up the discussion after a break. So we okay. are speaking with Francisco Navares Burgueño, who was just honored by the governor with a Creative Leadership Award. He directs the Folklorico program at Aspen Santa Fe Ballet. And again, more of the conversation after a break on Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Francisco Navares Burgueño. He runs the Folklorico program at Aspen Santa Fe Ballet, and he was just uh, honored with a Creative Leadership Award from the state for his cultural contributions, specifically to the Roaring Fork Valley. And uh, Paco, you say you remember your first dance lesson at five in your native Mexico, yes. and that Correct. this this kind of exposure early on can give kids confidence in their bodies in front of audiences. What do you remember feeling the first time you danced? Uh, the first time would I dance? I remember there in the school in the in the big center of the whole buildings who belongs to the elementary school in that little town in Anahuac, Chihuahua. Uh, seeing all my family, my relatives, my teachers, and I was just jumping and dancing like like my kids right now. I feel so proud what I was doing and and find myself doing something people appreciate watching this little kid doing it. 
that was something who changed my life in that time. And it's, it is, that's what I feel right now when I see my little kids, my kindergartens, my first graders, my 12th graders, uh, how their life is shaping or changing in that moment when they're in front of people doing what they're learning in the, after, the free after-school program we offer to these kids. Yeah, it's a free after-school program that's important to note in a, in a valley where lots of things are not free, of course, they're in the Roaring <laughs> Court. You, you say mm-hmm. that your dance teacher saw a lot of talent in you, and you joined a company as a teen which had you in rehearsals five days a week. But despite yes. despite that early focus on dance, you chose chemical engineering for college. Why, why did you make that decision? Well, uh, you know, being a, a kid or a single mom and uh, focusing in we need to bring income to the house that soon will be the better, then I decided to pursue this chemical engineering degree and keep dancing in my after-school time and uh, weekends, but I keep my school years uh, doing it and doing it until I got my degree, and and I started working uh, when I was just 23, 24 years old as a chemical engineer and as a quality control supervisor in a chemical plant over there where we used to make uh, paper out of the trees. Make paper, all right. Um, and yeah. so you, you took a hiatus from dance to focus on work and then moved to yes. New York City in the early 90s to learn English, get a master's degree. But graduate school was unattainable, and so you enrolled in free English classes. And I understand yes. that a, a talent show organized by the school where you took those classes got you dancing again. Yes, yes, Uh you know, I have I have to stop because I was looking for this master's degree in chemical over there in New York City. Hard that was hard. Then I suddenly this classmate asked me to teach them how to dance, to participate in this cultural week, and we did it. I teach them. We got the first place right there, and they asked me if I can keep teaching them. They were adults and. Our company started growing and growing and was one of the best companies in the New York City area. And I started teaching kids in 1996 there in New York and boom, 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 everything started growing and growing. And indeed, the executive executive director of Aspen Santa Fe Ballet reached out and asked you to run the Folklorico program. Exactly. And you knew right away, I understand, after interviewing for the job, that the Roaring Fork Valley was the place you wanted to be. What what was it that was so clear to you about this place? Well, when I was driving from Denver to here to, for my interview in 2002, I was like, wow, this looks like where I grew up in the mountains in Chihuahua. And I feel like I go back home and... After September 11, there in New York, that was like hard to live in New York City. Then I changed the Bronx for the Roaring Fork Valley. <laughs> yeah, it was a quick change and decision I made. And that was a wonderful decision. Swapping, really. swapping the Bronx for the Roaring Fork Valley, you said there. <laughs> Correct. So this weekend, more than 150 kids from the Valley, ranging from grades K to 12, will perform in the annual recital at the Aspen District Theater. Uh, What's been the most surprising thing about running this program for the past 14 years? 
the more surprising will be the the way this program has been growing. In the beginning, like like you say, there were like only twenty five kids, and I was like, okay, it's gonna be easy to run this program. Uh, but next year and the following year, more and more kids. Now I have almost <clears throat> two hundred kids uh, counting the al- alumni who are performing this year with me, and that's that's what amazing me the way people the way organizations the way schools the way the community is responding to this beautiful program the way it's growing every single year more and more kids thank you so much for being with us that is francisco nevarez burgueño he directs the folklorico dance program at aspen santa fe ballet and he recently won a governor's creative leadership award The other honorees are Betcher Foundation President and Executive Director Tim Schultz and Maureen Hardy of the Colorado town Joes for her program Voices of the Plains. It's an audio storytelling project that features residents of the Eastern Plains. Still to come, the rainy weather seems somehow appropriate given that the state just allowed for rain barrels. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Who owns the rain? That question was a topic of serious discussion and lawmaking at the Colorado Capitol this year. And it will soon be legal for homeowners to collect rainwater from rooftops and gutters. As CPR's environment reporter Grace Hood explains, the change has received a warm welcome from rain barrel owners, some of whom have been acting illegally for years. It's hard to spot Aaron Broderick's rain barrel unless you know what to look for. We're at his rental house, a plain Jane 60s box house in Fort Collins. And his rain barrel is actually a wine barrel under a gutter. The brass spigot on the front is the only clue that this isn't some kind of lawn decoration. The first few batches came out red like the wine that was in the cask initially, but now it's fairly clear. Broderick's so passionate about rain barrels that he outfitted this rental property and his home near Boulder with collection systems. As a science teacher, he says he's become a bit of an evangelist about saving water. I think one thing that was most shocking in terms of an aha and studying water with students was the fact that we're using perfectly good drinking water for so many reasons that we shouldn't be like watering the lawn and those thirsty flower beds. And so I think that this is one way to repurpose water. The state technically could have fined Broderick $500 for his system. The new law allows homeowners to collect as much as 110 gallons of rain in up to two barrels. The state has issued no fines in recent years. So why bother changing the law? It will tie the consumer to their water usage a lot more closely. Democratic Representative Jesse Danielson sponsored the legislation. She sees rain barrels as an important conservation tool. There was a groundswell of support from environmental groups for the bill. It was first introduced in 2015, but lacked support from the agricultural community and some lawmakers. However, it did strike a chord with homeowners along the Front Range this year. One person was so devoted to the cause that they started selling T-shirts. 
they put the words legalize it at the top, and instead of it being some marijuana-themed T-shirt, it was a picture of a rain barrel. So this is a fun, important environmental issue that just makes sense to people. Drought and water supply concerns have been a catalyst for other state legislatures in Texas, Utah, and California to take up rainwater collection. Some Western cities, like Los Angeles, even offer rebates on equipment. But in Colorado, where drought is still fresh on many farmers' minds, getting the bill passed wasn't easy. Rain barrels were kind of looked at as a uh, red-headed stepchild, in a sense. Mark Arnish runs a 2,800-acre farm near Keensburg. He sits on the board of the Colorado Farm Bureau, which first opposed the bill. Arnish says amendments to the 2016 version guaranteed that rain barrels won't interfere with farmers' water rights. It also requires the state engineer to track adoption and usage. And Arnish says that's what sealed the deal for him. We need to start preaching heavily about conservation and using water intelligently. And that starts, quite frankly, in the urban areas of our state. Debate and research on rainwater collection stretches back almost a decade in the state. Colorado launched a small-scale study back in 2007. It found that 97 percent of the rainwater in Douglas County is lost to evaporation and vegetation. The study was a catalyst for a 2009 law that gave well owners the right to collect rainwater. Rain barrel owner Aaron Broderick says passing the law may have been difficult, but owning a rain barrel is pretty simple. It's an afternoon project and all of a sudden you have water that you're, not, you're no longer paying for or draining from your well in, in the case where we live. Broderick's Fort Collins setup cost under $100. The thing that's interesting is, is that it really isn't much of an inconvenience. Whether the new law causes an inconvenience for water rights holders will be the real test. The state engineer's office is expected to deliver its first report on rain barrels sometime in 2019. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. And a little patience would do you good because the law doesn't take effect until August. You can follow environment reporter Grace Hood on Twitter at Grace Hood. Finally today, Fort Collins singer-songwriter Brent Cowles has performed since he was a teenager, first in the group You, Me, and Apollo, and now as a solo artist. But he's not just musically minded, he has a philanthropic streak as well. Cowles and other musicians raised money for health clinics in Uganda and then traveled there. We played music in orphanages and primary schools, high schools, and the remote villages and had kids jumping up and dancing with us. And music really is the, uh, the universal language. Cowles took a tune called Walking and added some local language. We use the, the word Owotewa, um, which is our friends. And it's the idea behind the song is it's better to walk with a friend than alone. Cause I go walking within your soul it's looking
can hear Brent Cowell's music and learn more about him at openaircpr.org. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. This is listener-supported Colorado Public Radio. I'm Ryan Warner.